morning, church. <clears throat> Just turn with me in your copy of, <clears throat> of God's Word to Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8. I'd like to begin by apologizing for myself. I think I'm, I'm a little bit under the weather today, so uh, please excuse the, the coughs and sniffles. <clears throat> promise to stay away from you though after the service. Last week we began our Easter series looking at the book of Leviticus and we discussed last week that in the book of Leviticus we see God solving the problem of how he will dwell with his people, him being infinite, holy and righteous and them being finite, common, and unrighteous. And we saw last week the beginning of the three concepts that are to bridge the gap, to communicate the distance between God and man, but also to to show us how the gap can be bridged. We saw last week the ritual sacrifices and their function in the life of Israel and how they translate to us in the New Testament era. And today we're going to look at the second concept, which is the Levitical priesthood. The Bible describes the God of Israel as a God who desires true worship. It is not far-fetched to say that the reason for the existence of humanity is so that God, the God of Scripture, will have worshippers. But the arrival of sin makes the project of God being worshipped by humans, a little complicated, let's say. Let me explain a few fundamental ways in which sin complicates worship. First, sin requires death. God is a consuming fire, and because of sin, we are unable to come near him unless he consumes a pure living being in wrath. This means that for worship to occur, if you follow, the goal is worship, that people worship God. But because of sin, there is a problem. And for worship to be able to occur, worship must be properly be preceded by death. Think of it this way. Uh, There was no need for death in Eden as Adam was worshiping God. Uh, The worship of Eden was clean and described in Genesis 2 in terms of the beautiful work that Adam performed in the temple of Eden. It was clean, joyous, without shame, and God was pleased because he said it was very good. But when sin comes, death must now occur as judgment. And as God makes covenants, as Hebrews tells us, Every covenant must now be established by the shedding of blood. And so if God is going to get the worship he desires, it is going to have to be on the foundation of a bloody altar. It cannot be clean anymore as it was in Eden. There needs to be blood first before there is worship. The need for death first means now worship is a bloody affair. Even today, when we come together for the remembrance meal, communion, we are celebrating and remembering a death, right? But death, of course, if you think about death, death is not natural. 
Death is not beautiful. There's nothing in death. Death separates people. It is painful and destructive, but yet it is now necessary because of sin. Um, that is a complication in worship. Furthermore, sin creates a new category of distance between God and man. Not only does the sin need to be atoned for, but also the sin has corrupted us to such a degree that we are no longer whole. We're no longer pure. We now bear the scars and blemishes of sin in our bodies and our persons. There is now sickness, mental instability, autoimmune problems, all of which remind us that we are now associated with death and are no longer close to God in the same way. While our humanity is indeed intact, it is badly disjointed and twisted by sin in all facets of ourselves. And so in God's project of wanting to be worshipped by the Israelites and subsequently by us, he must drive home the point of his purity by instructing Moses to build a tabernacle. And some of the key features of this tabernacle is that not just anyone can enter into it however they want, because there's a distance between God and man now. Only those who have been purified and who live a very different life to the normal person can come into it and attend to it. Humans walk around bearing the marks of death and sin all over them, in their past, in their minds, in their habits, in their daily life. And so for worship to occur, there needs to be a mediator who is shielded from this life and marks of sin as much as is possible in order to communicate the distance between man and God. You can't just, being the way you are, waltz into the tabernacle because you bear, as you walk, the marks of sin and judgment. That is where the Levitical priesthood comes in. <clears throat> that is the function of the Levitical priesthood. The function of the Levitical priesthood was to be the religious center of Judaism. And the central work of the Levitical priesthood was to remind people of sin constantly in worship. That's really what it was. We'll see that just in a moment in Hebrews. Chapters 8 to 10 and chapter 21 to 22 deal specifically with the Levitical priesthood in the book of Leviticus. And I've summarized the contents of chapters 8 to 10 and 21 to 22 under four headings for us to consider this morning before we have communion. So if you're taking, if you're taking notes, here are the four headings. First, the priests were to be Aaron's sons. Second, the priests were to be consecrated mediators. Third, the priest's main task was to keep the worship system pure. And fourth, the priest's work was ultimately fruitless. Priests were to be Aaron's sons. The priests were to be consecrated mediators. The priest's main task was, task was to keep the worship system pure. And the priest's work was ultimately fruitless. Let's consider the first heading. The priests were to be Aaron's sons. Look with me at chapter 8, and we'll read a few verses there. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing hall and oil and the bull of the sin offering, 
and two rams in the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, <clears throat> and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed them with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle on all that was in it, and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, and anointed the altar and all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the reading of God's word. Chapter 8 and 9 reveal the ordination of Aaron and his sons. Uh, the first thing that I want you to notice this morning is that the priesthood of, Lev of the Levites was specifically for Aaron and his sons. This is what you see clearly throughout, even in the ordination passage and throughout uh, the Old Testament. The priests are called the sons of Aaron. Uh, no one else had the privilege of being the mediator in Israel between God and his people in this way. Moses, of course, was not a priest in this order. His office was much larger and definitional even over the priesthood. And so you might wonder why. <clears throat> why is that so? Why is Aaron given this privilege to be the one who comes in and does the work of sacrificing and bringing the people of God, cleansing them for worship before the Lord? Why would God choose specifically him? The answer is that the, the, the Bible does not give us any specific reason why God chose Aaron and his sons over anybody else. In fact, the question of Aaron's priesthood is further complicated when we consider Aaron was complicit in the golden calf incident and in the rebellion against Moses incident. Do you remember that? Remember those stories in the golden calf? Moses goes up to pray to the Lord, and then the people down there say, Moses has been gone for too long. Make us a golden calf. Make us a, a god to worship. And then Aaron actually facilitates them doing that. He says, bring your things. Let's burn them. Let's melt them. And he fashions a cow. And then Aaron himself proclaims to the people, here is your god who took you out of Egypt. Aaron himself did that. It seems if qualification requires moral upstanding and purity, uh, then Aaron does not qualify. Well, the only answer that we can muster that is definitive is the same answer we give for why Moses was chosen as the leader or why David was chosen as the king from which the Messiah would come. And the answer is, it is God's choice. It is God's 
selective choice. Um, God designed it that way, he thought of it that way, and he fulfilled it that way, and with that we must be content. This is an important lesson, this particular point, that the priesthood was for Aaron's sons and for Aaron's sons only. It's an important lesson even for us in the New Testament church. Why is so-and-so gifted in this way or that? Why is so-and-so given these responsibilities among God's people in the work of, of building the kingdom and these other people aren't or this other person isn't? The answer is the Holy Spirit has decided that in his wisdom. And for that we must be content. In the, work, in the work of the gospel, there are a varieties of gifts and a variety of roles to be played, and they must all be cherished and celebrated. It's less about why did God choose Aaron specifically, and more about why would God choose anyone at all? Why is God even doing this? Because of his great grace, he is drawing a people to himself, the choosing of Aaron communicates to us God's great redemption plan. That even in the midst of our sin, God is going to find a way to overcome that in order so that we can worship him. Don't think, why this person? Why that person? Why is that person having those gifts and being so influential? Why is this person being able like this and being so influential? But rather think, look at the grace of God. God is using people to draw people to himself. And there is also another lesson for us here that we must not forget. In, and there's a lesson in the story of King Uzziah. King Uzziah was one of the most successful, if not successful, the most successful king in the history of Judah. He reigned for 52 years and was very powerful. And Judah at that time had great wealth. He fortified cities. Everything was wonderful. Around the time when Isaiah the prophet was prophesying. And King Uzziah felt, looked at his kingdom and looked at himself and was so puffed up that he did not see a reason why he cannot go, being a son of David, he cannot go and offer sacrifices at the temple. And so he decided one morning, I'm going to go and offer sacrifices at the temple. And he entered the temple and the priest told him, this is not for you, Uzziah. This is a work only for the sons of Aaron. And Uzziah said, I'm going to do it. And as he was doing it, the Lord struck him immediately with leprosy. There's a lesson for us. There can be a puffed upness within us where we think that we are omnicompetent. You know, when you feel like because you're so good at one thing, or the Holy Spirit has gifted you so well at one thing, that your opinion should be taken the best in everything. That you are the one who's omnicompetent. You can be so full of yourself, like Uzziah, that you do not take seriously the restrictions that are in the scripture for, who, for which work is for who, when, and why. Make sense? Let's take that lesson. The priesthood was for Aaron's sons, and there is a lesson there for us. Second, the priests were to be consecrated mediators. As we have read in the chapter, the ordination of Aaron and his sons was a momentous event. We have seen here in chapter 8, the entire assembly is brought to the tent of meeting, and then Aaron is dressed splendidly in a sash and an ephod in front of them all, and then he is anointed with the same oil 
that anointed the tabernacle. I don't know if you saw that. Moses takes oil, he anoints the tabernacle where God is going to be, the presence of God is going to be, and then the same oil is taken and he anoints Aaron with it, communicating to the people that Aaron is set apart in a way that the rest of them are not. Aaron is, to, is now being consecrated to deal with the holy things because he's been anointed like the holy things have been anointed. And then, of course, three offerings are made for him in the rest of chapter 8, which we did not read. The, purific the purification offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering are all made for Aaron and his sons. And then he's given in charge, a charge by Moses in verse 31 and following. And in chapter 9, we see Aaron begin his duties for the first time after a week of sacrifices. And the Lord puts his stamp of approval at the end of chapter 9 by accepting his offering uh, of, uh, of, of his offerings that he has been making on the, his first day of work. But it is not just his grand. So what we're seeing here is that there's this, there's this grand ordination that shows that Aaron is to be consecrated. He is to be set apart from the rest of the people of Israel. But it is not just his ordination that communicates that he's set apart, but also I want you to notice the restrictions on his life in chapters 21 and 22. Look at the restrictions in chapter 21 and 22. Turn with me there for a second. There are multiple restrictions on the priesthood from now until, essentially, the end of the priesthood. They're, they're not going to, there are certain things that they will not be able to do, certain ways that they will not be able to live. We see, for example, if you just read in verse 21, he says, Speak to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people except his closest relatives. So a priest cannot just go around making himself unclean by touching, by being in a room or even touching dead bodies that are not his closest relatives. So if he has a best friend, he can't come near him when he is dead. If his best friend dies in front of him, his best friend dies, dro drops dead, or his best friend is, is clearly seen to be dead and he, he dies in front of him, he cannot go and touch him. Now he has to call other people because he is a Levite. There is now to be a separation between him and things that are things that are. The things that communicate death. We'll talk about that more next week when we look at the purity laws. Um, but he, he has restrictions on him on mourning for the dead to ensure that they remain untainted by the stench of death in order to do their duties. There's even restrictions on who they can marry. I don't know if you saw that. He cannot just marry whomever he desires. Verse 7, they shall not marry a prostitute or a, a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is to be holy to his God. In fact, if you jump even with regards to the, to the high priest himself, we're told in verse 14, the high priest cannot marry a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled. These he shall not marry. But verse 13, he shall take a wife in her virginity. Why is that? It is to ensure that the children born are truly the sons of Aaron. If he marries a woman who, has, who is not a virgin in any shape or form, there's going to be questions about whether or not this person is truly a son of Aaron. So he must only marry a woman in her virginity. And there are many other restrictions. They must not cut their beards in a particular way, which communicating the wholeness 
that they have to have. There's a whole list of restrictions. They're talking about being injured. Look at verse 18. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame or who has a mutilated face or a limp too long, a man who has injured foot or an injured hand, a hunchback, a dwarf, or any kind of defect. Why? It is because when the worship of God is being done, it must be done by someone who communicates the highest form of humanity we can have, wholeness, something that does not have the marks of the fall. So when somebody is injured, when someone is broken, when someone is, has, has all kinds of things on their body that show that are as a result of the fall, they cannot come into the holy and clean tabernacle. It must only be those who are whole communicating what it is, the sacrifices that are required from God. It's the same with the sacrifices. The sacrifices themselves must be whole. You can't bring an animal that is limping to the Lord. All of this communicates this separation between God and, and man. And so what does this communicate to us in, in, in large strokes? I want to put this to you. These restrictions, this consecration, this separation of his life, communicates to us one thing. Access to the Lord is privileged. Access to the Lord is privileged. Only clean, unstained, and consecrated can have access to the Lord. If a man is to enter the temple of the Lord and be accepted, he is going to have to be without blemish. And throughout the Old Testament, I can tell you, that we are disappointed by bad priest after bad priest. From chapter 10, which we'll look at in a moment with Aaron's sons, to the young Levite who became Micah's personal priest to his gods, through the many priests that Jeremiah and Hosea complained about, and even to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Lord lists the many scenes and the many uncleannesses of the priests of uh, who are the sons of Aaron. The Old Testament ends, in a sense, awaiting a pure, unblemished, godly high priest. So that's second point, that they are to be consecrated mediators. The third point, the priests were to keep the worship system pure. When we, when we looked at the, sacri the, the sacrifices last week, we saw the distinct descriptions of each sacrifice. For the Lord, it is obvious that the detail is very important. We saw that last week, that there are certain specific sacrifices that have to be made in a specific way. And among reasons for the details is because God is setting up a worship system that communicates real and lasting truth to the Israelites and to the church after the time of Israel. And the, Levi, and the Levite's job was to ensure that those instructions and those details, therefore that message that is communicated by those instructions and those details, is followed and kept pure. The work of the priesthood is summarized clearly in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 10. Come with me there and see the work of the, Le Le of the Levitical priesthood summarized clearly. This is the work of the, of the Levites. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes of the Lord that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. 
So that's their work. They are to distinguish between the holy and the common. The, Le the, the Levites are to stand as, as the gate, as it were, saying unclean, clean, holy, unholy. You can come and do this. You can bring that animal. Let us inspect that animal. Is your worship really pure or is it not? Is it worthy to be given to the great God of the universe? They were the, the bouncers, as it were, in that sense. And they are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes, and the statutes that he specifically has in mind are the statutes regarding the work of the Levites, all the laws regarding what you are to bring when you, when you sacrifice and how you are to bring it. Their job is set clear and is to ensure the system is pure. But if you go back to chapter one, verse 1 of chapter 10, we see what happened right after the grand ordination. So chapters 8 and 9 tells us the grand ordination of Aaron and his sons, and then immediately in verse 1 of chapter 10, we have problems with the priests. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. We're not told much specific re specifics regarding this fire that they offered other than the fact that it was unauthorized and their death was instant. And what is interesting, when you contrast what happens to them to the reality of the guilt offering. You remember last week I told you that there were five types of offerings and I only took you through four because the fifth one, the gift offering, we we're going to look at today. And the guilt offering is important for us to understand the significance of this event. So turn with me just for a moment to chapter 5. I want you to see the guilt offering in its connection to the death of Nadab and Abihu. So there were, five of, there were four offerings that we considered last week. And here's the fifth one. Verse 14 of chapter 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith, and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. Did you notice what's happening here? The, this offering is different to the sin offering. We discussed the sin offering, which is also called the purification offering last week, where somebody, if somebody did a sin unintentionally, then they were to bring the sin offering, and their sin would be atoned for. But this one is different in this sense, that this person has profaned something that is holy. Do you understand? So it's, not, it's, a, it's almost like a subset of the sin offering. Here I am, I've intentionally done a sin. I've slapped someone, or maybe you can't slap someone unintentionally, can you? Uh, I've, you know, I've, I've killed somebody's goat by mistake. So now I'm going to offer the, the, the sin offering, which 
is also, there's a reparation for that as well uh, in chapter 6. But this is not for just normal, when you've just done something wrong normally out there in Israel. This is specifically when you have, brought, when you have done something, you've profaned something that is holy. You've touched something that you shouldn't have touched. You've, you've, you've uh, treated holy something that you shouldn't have treated holy. Or you've, you've treated unholy something that you should have treated as holy. As it comes to the worship in the temple, you've maybe put your hand where you shouldn't have put your hand in. Or you maybe have killed an animal in a manner that you shouldn't have killed an animal. And so now there is the guilt offering. There is guilt in handling the holy things of the Lord in a manner that is unworthy. But what I want to bring to your attention, in the guilt offering, the Lord makes provision for the atonement. Meaning that if somebody does that, then they can, there's a way to fix it. There's a way to say, here's another animal that is according to these instructions, so that my sin of defiling something that is holy can be atoned for. But no such thing is done for Nadab and Abihu. Did you notice that? No such thing. For Nadab and Abihu, they've just done something that they should not have done. They've offered unauthorized fire. They've profaned one of God's holy things. And yet there is no sacrifice that is given for them. There's not even an opportunity for them to have such leniency. It is not possible to determine whether Nadab and Abihu meant to rebellious. I know sometimes when people read this, this passage, they assume that Nadab and Abihu were just being rebellious. But there's nothing in the passage that says that. Uh, it's possible that there were eager beavers, just like Uzzah, uh, who tried to catch the ark from falling. Remember Uzzah? tried to catch the ark from falling because he thought that he was cleaner than the ground that the ark was going to. In the same way, these guys, we've just been, we've just been ordained. We are the priests of the Lord. Let's go and sacrifice and let's go burn an incense that the Lord has not commanded us to burn. And that was the problem. The problem is that it was unauthorized. God had not told them to do it. What they did is that they acted presumptuously and God, because they are, they are the priests, and God wants, to, God wants to communicate how holy they are to be and how their actions are, are connected to how people see God as being holy, he kills them instantly without giving them an opportunity to bring a guilt offering. This is a, a really gruesome story. And what is the lesson from this story? Well, the lesson is found in what Moses says, come back to chapter 10, what Moses says in verse 3, this is the lesson. This is the summary lesson. What is the lesson from the death of Nadab and Abihu? Here it is. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Verse 3. And before all the people, I will be glorified. That's the lesson. The priests must treat God as holy. Their calling is high. It is to mediate between a holy God and a common man. Their lives are no longer their own. If we are near, now coming to you and me, if we are near the God of Israel as the New Testament royal priesthood, then we ought to sanctify God in our hearts, in our wills, and in our actions. We must go away from the being eager beavers like Nadab and Abihu were trying to do things that God has told us to not do, God has not told us to do. We need to sanctify in our hearts God. We must 
hold him as separate. We are to think of him as completely other. You can think of people and different kinds of people and different kinds of things in a particular category. But when you're thinking about God and God's work and God's word, you must put that at a separate and higher category in your mind and in your heart. We must understand that our behavior is directly correlated to how much we have set God apart in our hearts. Nadab and Abihu clearly had not set God apart in their hearts. They hadn't sanctified God in their hearts. That's why Moses says this. And so they just said, well, we could just do this, and they did it without properly setting God apart in their hearts and actually waiting to hear instruction. You and I, our behavior also reveals how much we have set God apart in our hearts. How seriously, as it were, do we take him? What you do, dear friend, habitually, normally, in life, is not disconnected to where you have put God in your heart, to what you think about God. It's not disconnected. This is why the New Testament writers clearly believe that we need to think on God and his works so that we can change our behaviors. The New Testament does not come at behavior first. It comes at what do you think about God and his works and that needs to be right, and that, and from there, will it flow into the change of behavior. See, that's how Jesus, that's how Paul, that's how Peter argues. The Lord Jesus says, God has forgiven you, you must forgive others. Think on God, set him apart. God is not just like anybody else. God is the one, God is holy, and God has forgiven me, therefore, I must forgive others. End of story. The Lord Jesus says, love your enemies. Why? Because God brings rain and sunshine on his enemies. Okay. Why must I, how can I change my behavior towards my enemies? I must think about God and his works, and I must set him and his works apart. You see, when, when somebody else does something, I can evaluate it. But when God does something, it becomes law. It becomes something to imitate. Jesus says, love your enemies because God gives, brings rain and sunshine to his enemies. Paul says, because God became a man and humbled himself, you also must humble yourself. Do you see the argumentation? Because God did this, it means it is good for you to do and to follow. So your problem of pride is not really about you. It's about you thinking rightly about God. If God can humble himself, what are you? If God can give himself to people to be judged by people that he made and then spit on and slapped by people that he made, by people that he's upholding at that very moment. If God can do that, you can't turn the other cheek. You can't humble yourself in whatever situation. See, this is, what Paul, this is why Paul even loses his mind in 1 Corinthians 5 and says, I don't understand how there are lawsuits among you Christians. How is it that there are lawsuits among you? Why not rather be wronged? See, because Paul thinks about Jesus. Jesus did not consider being wronged and being slapped 
and, being, and suffering injustice as something that is beneath him. Jesus thought he would gladly go through that so that he can get his bride. How can you not do that? How can you not just, I'll, let me just suffer injustice and suffer it and keep my peace and trust in God for the sake of whatever the point or whatever is going on in that situation, to keep the peace, to, to, to honor people, to bring them to repentance, to overlook sin at particular points. Why must I always be shooting at people? See, to the degree that we have set God apart in our hearts, it is to that degree that our behavior will change. So how sanctified is God in your heart and mind when you think about him and his actions? First thing is that you have to think about him. You have to think about him and his excellence. And then you also have to think about him and his works and study him and his excellence and his works and then translate that to your behavior. Is this behavior in line with thinking correctly about God? Do you understand? Well, that's the third point. They were to keep the worship system pure. And finally and fourthly, the priest's work was ultimately fruitless. The priest's work was ultimately fruitless. As we close, we simply must consider the book of Hebrews' commentary on these passages and on the Levitical priesthood. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> you need to see this. You need to see this for yourself and what the thought is uh, from the New Testament's perspective on all of these sacrifices and all this work of the Levites that we are considering. Look at verse 23 of chapter 9. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rituals, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Here's the first point. The system that was in force was merely a copy of the real one. The real thing, the real worship is not this. This was the system that they are supposed to keep pure is actually a copy. It's not the actual real thing. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, but as the high priest, of God, but as, but as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as, he, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This repetitive work that they were to do was not actually achieving putting away sin. It was repeatedly going in year on year, doing this work, but, the, but there is a new high priest, there's a high priest who has come, and he has offered, he has come not only to the copies, things made with human hands, but he's come into the real thing. The true sacrifice of God has entered into the courts of heaven. And the true priest of God has entered once and finished the job. Verse 27. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. If a priest was hoping <clears throat> to make his people perfect, he was going to be sorely disappointed because the blood of animals does not make anybody perfect. But rather, here's what it is. Verse 2, Otherwise, there would, not, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. What was the job of the Hebrew, of the Levitical priest? To remind people of sins every year. Why? Because for worship to occur, for people to truly worship God, sin is a problem. And so sin must be dealt with. Sin must be thought of. You can't come to worship God without a thought to what can, what's going to happen to my sin. You can't just, I'm just going to waltz in to you, God, and, and praise you and sing to you and expect you to bless me without a thought to what I just did this past week and what's going on in my heart and the sin that really defines who I am in some respects. I can't. You can't do that. You need to be thinking about sin, humbling yourself, coming to the Lord, and then waiting for the Lord to actually properly take away your sin. But look at these. Verse 4. For it is impossible for the, bull, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ, the high priest, came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But wait a second, the scripture said this was a pleasing aroma to him. No, there was to communicate to us what is required. But he has not really taken pleasure in them. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through, offering, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Let me summarize. I, when I was thinking about this series, I thought, can I really stretch this out for four sermons? Because really, the summary of the series is this, look to Jesus. I could have really just preached a five-minute message on the book of Leviticus. It was all a picture. All of it was weak to do anything. The real, the real, the real thing has arrived. The real sacrifice has arrived. And the real priest has arrived that actually accomplishes something. Anybody who is stuck in Judaism is stuck in a copy that does not do anything. The reality of the shadow has come. Why chase a shadow when the person is here? In the same way, Christ being the true high priest 
who has come, has done his work, and finished it. So the answer is this. What is the summary of our study of the, Levit of the Levitical priesthood? Don't look to the Levitical priesthood. Look to Jesus. And I also want to add this, since I see I have a minute. I also want to add this. Pastors and priests are not in the same WhatsApp group. You follow? Okay? Pastors and priests are two different things. A pastor does not purify you to make you holy for worship to God. Who does that? Jesus. Okay? Pastors are not mediators between you and God. Okay? I know that's popular today, but it's absolute hogwash, hubaloo. It's nonsense. Pastors are men, normal people. They do not follow from the... There is some continuation in the sense that they eat from the temple, just like the, 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 the priesthood ate from the temple. They teach the people, just like the Levitical uh, priesthood taught the people, etc. But the, the, the similarities between the priesthood and pastors are, are very thin. The real priest, the real fulfillment of this office of the Levitical priesthood is Jesus Christ who purifies you and keeps you pure and he will receive you to himself pure. He actually does something. He, he's an upgrade from the Levitical priesthood. When they couldn't do it, he does it. He makes you clean. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for our once and, once and for all sacrifice, sacrifice, and our ever-living, never having to repeat his work again, priest. Amen. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. You are altogether unlike anybody else. You have succeeded where the Levites failed dismally. Even the best of the Levites, doing his work to his uttermost, could not achieve what you have achieved. Praise be to the Son of God, pure, holy, sinless, undefiled. Help us to love you and to sanctify, sanctify you in our hearts. Amen.